0: Hello everybody, and welcome to another edition of Suvadra's Seasonal, our regular, but occasional special edition of Buddhist Voices, of which there have been two previously, a Summer Seasonal, in which we heard from Suvadra over two parts about his journey to becoming a Buddhist in Scotland in the 1960s and 70s,
1: mm-hmm,
0: Yeah. and his uh, eventual ordination into the then Western Buddhist Order, now Trirat the Buddhist Order. And we followed up in the autumn, in the fall of in America, with a very interesting discussion about his life now, caring for his teacher, Erdien Sangharakshtha, here at Adasthana Retreat Centre in Herefordshire, in a very lovely corner of England. Mm-hmm. And then, in a way, out of his discussion of his practice came a conversation about a Tibetan practice, a practice of Tibetan origin, should practice which I'd recommend anyone to listen to, because it was very inspiring. Mm. Personally, I enjoyed being in the conversation. Mm. And I'm very happy to be back in winter at Adistana
1: with Suvadra
0: to do your winter seasonal.
1: Yes. In some ways, it's not very wintry, is it? It's very blustery and...
0: It's alarmingly mild.
1: Yes, it's very mild.
0: I went for a walk yesterday and there was blossom on some trees Mm. and the gorse was in bloom.
1: Mm. Gosh, the gorse, in the winds. January. Mm.
0: In ja- early January.
1: Yes. Well, the news they had an item today that there are ten times more plants in bloom this early January than the previous year. Mm. One worries. Well, if you like flowers in winter, it's good. <laughs>
0: it's very pleasant. I'm not sure it's very good, but it's yes. very pleasant. yes. So winter has come to this place. Have you witnessed a? Is this your first winter? This is my is second
1: one. Is yes. second? was last winter, more wintry. I think it was about the same. Actually, it was quite a mild winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But of course, not the same in Wales in your semi hermitage where you were. Before. No, the,
1: the previous year was was cold. was we were just right in the uh, on the edge of Snowdonia National Park, which is the mountainous area of North Wales, and uh, the previous to the year to that. Was very, very cold. That's the one I thought I was going to die from the cold, having come back come back from India.
0: <laughs> I come from India.
1: You see, I come from New
0: Hampshire in America. Oh right,
1: so it's very cold.
0: Well, the other day I was told with wind's chill, which means the you know, yeah. how cold it feels, it was minus thirty Fahrenheit.
1: Mmm. So not my Fahrenheit.
0: I don't even know how cold that is in centigrade, but it's very oh,
1: cold. Isn't that's it? very cold.
0: Yes. That's how cold it gets there. Yes. But it's very dry cold there. Mm. So if you wrap up warm, you can go out at least for some time, whereas mm. what I remember of Scottish and Welsh winters is a damp that seeps into your bones.
1: Yes, yes. Even just a small temperature is quite debilitating there. Mmm. Mm.
0: So it's winter and uh, we're using the seasons as a bit of a kind of way to structure what's been a long storied life mm-hmm. in the Dharma. Mm-hmm. So I guess, are there any memorable winters that, that come to mind?
1: I suppose there is one memorable winter and in some ways it connects back to one of the themes from the last interview that you did in autumn. So there was... An autumn of 1985 when I went to Tuscany with Sangharakshita and a team of order members and with, I think, 20 or so young men who were being ordained into the order. And during that retreat, Sangharakshita asked me if I would go to India on his behalf to do some ordinations. Now, I had been thinking to go to India at the end of that long autumn retreat, I had been thinking of and going, and, and I decided against it, but he asked me, no, please do go and do these ordinations along with Subuti and Kamala Shila. Now, uh, there was a big surprise. That's a whole other story in itself, and uh, I couldn't believe I was supposed to be representing the most mindful man in the universe when I seemed to be the most unmindful man in the universe. That's the way it seemed at the time. So I went off at the end of the Tuscany retreat of 1985 out to India, I had been expecting to go back to England, to Manchester, and have the winter there. But I went off in December out to India and spent December and January in India.
0: And where did you pitch up in India?
1: Well, I first of all pitched up in Bombay, as it was called Bombay then. Now we have to refer to it as Mumbai, but it was officially called Bombay then. And I was immediately taken into the heart of our Buddhist movement out there. And it was wonderful, it was fantastic. People told me that I'd be, you know, I'd have culture shock arriving. You know, all the things that you see, that you hear of, you hear of, you know, the squalor and the Mm. hugely difficult circumstances, people living on pavements and so on. But I, I was so prepared for that that it didn't come as a shock. The shock came... Actually, when I returned from India, back to the West, and seeing what I thought was a rather artificial and very cushioned and very Mm. uh, sumptuous lifestyle compared to India. But actually, in India, it seemed quite, I won't say natural, but it it seemed, hmm, I don't know, what word am I looking for here?
0: My memory of the first time I went to India and came back with a similar sense was that I remember landing at Heathrow Mm. and walking out, and I genuinely thought the Queen had died or something it was, it was so, so quiet. Dead. <laughs> it wasn't just that it was quiet it was so dead yes. and it yes. was an aliveness to India even yes. people living in school are terrible yeah. poverty in a way not to be diminished but most people that I met there were so alive
1: and yes. certainly yes. appreciative, emotionally alive and very very uh, keenly aware of their circumstances too but not overburdened by it not whereas, complaining. Not complaining, whereas people here complain with the slightest thing. Mm. I, I I mustn't get into my gouty old colonel mode.
0: Colonel Badra. voting. So, it's a bit of a surprise, isn't it, at least on the surface, yeah. that you know, a boy from Dundee who's been in Manchester and, and in a yes. very kind of different culture,
1: mm.
0: empire aside, a very mm. different culture from India,
1: yeah.
0: you, know, you just took to it like a, a duck to water. I did,
1: yes. And, and I think mainly because... As Sangerak should explain before I went out, that I'd be going into the equivalent dimension of our Buddhist movement in India. And it, and it seemed very natural that the people who I was meeting were converts to Buddhism as I had been. They weren't born Buddhists. They'd come to it from being the so-called untouchable Hindus. So
0: I wonder, I mean, there is this obvious discrepancy between the pampered West, as it were, Mm -hmm. and the relative Mm -hmm. vitality of life in India, even with the difficulties. Was there something recognisable in the movement and the order in India that felt the same as the FWBO that you were leaving behind in the West?
1: There was. There there were some differences, but there were huge areas of similarity. Well, first, that was most obvious was almost all of our uh, people out there were utterly devoted to Sangha they thought that his approach to Dharma was, was absolutely wonderful. Many of them had actually met him and uh, spent time with him mm. in the 60s and even sometimes in the 50s. So uh, the devotion there, and although we aren't so demonstrably devoted to to Raksita, we do have this gratitude towards him, even though it's sometimes, you know, very sort of tempered in an English-British way, but it is there. Mm. So that, you know, gave us an immediate connection And we studied the same things, we had the same uh, puja, we had the same rituals, the same meditations, the same approach to the meditations when you were teaching them. They worked. So it was like we had a a universal approach to the Dharma that that worked east and west.
0: So there you are, you're in Bombay, and you've been taken into the the bosom of the community. Mm -hmm. How long did you stay in Bombay?
1: I stayed in Bombay, I think, three or four days I arrived on uh, December the fifth, and that's important to remember. December the fifth, because the following day when we woke up, that was the death anniversary of Dr. Ambedkar, mm. and uh, his cremation, or his funeral stupa, I should say, is on the beach, Chowpatty Beach, in Bombay, and I think his his cremation was there as well. And I went. I was taken, of course, to the celebration on the beach. And you know, my first day after getting up in Bombay, I saw. I don't know, just the whole beach just covered for about a mile and a half with Buddhists mm. everywhere. And, and the whole of Bombay, you know, sort of comes to a halt because of hundreds and thousands of Buddhists coming in by train, buses, bullet carts from all the areas round about. And they come every year for this just to go to the stupa to light a candle or give some flowers mm. in front of the photograph of Dr Ambedkar their great leader so the stupa
0: is a funerary
1: monument mm, to yeah.
0: Dr Babasaheb Ambedkar
1: yes who is the
0: spiritual leader of the
1: dalit community who was the spiritual leader and i suppose he still is and that mm. although he's he's passed away a long time ago his spirit still keeps the whole thing going yes
0: and his community He consciously chose to convert to Buddhism in the late 50s Mm. with a very large community behind him Mm. and had the connection with Sangra and then died in a very untimely way. And and we've, as a community, as an order, we've continued to work with that community and formed a real real bond.
1: And that community would have been treated in previous decades as an untouchable community. And Dr. Ambedkar himself... Had been born as an untouchable, treated as an untouchable, but he vowed that he would never die an untouchable. He would not die a Hindu, where he was treated as an untouchable. And so from very early on, he was looking for some way forward, not just for him, but for his people. And he really was an exceptional man, but under any circumstances. Oh,
0: yeah, a great intellect,
1: Mm. of course,
0: managed to attend Oxford despite the Mm. incredible burden of untouchable. Columbia University as well. And ends up, you know, basically writing the Indian constitution after independence and is the the yes. first justice minister, is that
1: right? First minister of law.
0: Minister of yeah. law. So there you are, watching this mass of yes. humanity,
1: of Buddhists so inspiring. covering the beach. Mm. Mm. I remembered that a friend of mine, Vajraketu, had arrived out to India and he arrived not at the death ceremony anniversary, but I think it was one of the other... It might have been the birth anniversary celebrations and he was very, very moved by that and made a sort of resolution never to sort of lose connection with this community. And I immediately you know felt the same sort of thing that this is going to be something quite major in my life. And it was. It was something major in my life. It still is
0: still is. So you head up from Bombay, where did you go next?
1: I headed up from Bombay. I was put on the bus uh, on okay. my own by Bodhi Sen. Our good friend down in Bombay, he put me on the bus up to the Bhaja Retreat Centre, which was in the countryside about an hour outside Pune. And I had to navigate everything on my own, but I managed it. It was all right. As I mentioned earlier on, that Sangharakshita had asked myself and Kamarashila Shila and Sabuti to do ordinations. Okay. Actually, I think me going up on my own by bus, I think that might have be been a subsequent year. I think it was the second visit. I'll have to look back at my notes.
0: It's a long time ago. Yes,
1: then. it's now 30... What did you say? 29. 29, 29 years ago. ago, yes.
0: So the ordinations are actually right at the start of your, your time, so obviously that's the initial reason to go. He's not sure. Well,
1: now, yes, I'm, now <laughs> I'm sort of... I'm questioning my timeline because I had many visits out there even before I went to, mm. s- to, to stay and live, live there. So I've got many layers of, of memories. But yes, I think it was quite soon after I went out there. I met, first of all, the people who were being ordained when they came to Bajra Retreat Centre. And there were quite a mix of of people, some very educated, some uneducated, some people who'd known Bhante in previous years and some who had not met him yet. By Bhante, I mean, of course, (laughs) Sangharakshita. And we did this ordination retreat and it was quite an amazing thing to, you know, be on. Be in a, a retreat in a small retreat centre in a very ancient part of India where some of the very first Buddhist rock temples or cave temples as they're called overlook that, that retreat centre, half a mile away on the hillside.
0: So you'd gone to do these ordinations feeling a bit... By your own estimation <laughs> inadequate. Yes. <laughs> but there you are, you are having to do it and you're I mean, I'm assuming something did come through. You did manage to carry something.
1: Well, I adequately I, I treated myself just as a servant of I Thought, Well, I'm doing the ordinations on his behalf, so I'll just do them as he, as he asked me to, just to do them mindfully and carefully. And that's what I did. I didn't have to put on any airs or graces or whatever. I just had to make sure that I got coached enough in the Hindi parts of the ceremony to make sure I didn't fluff it. Good. I think I nearly did at one point, where one line says My Shuda Kartahu I purify myself. And somebody thought I said I purify my shoes because he got Shudda and Judah mixed up. Of course I I couldn't have said both the words shuddha Judah. <laughs> But he thought I said, I purify my shoes. So he burst out into hysterical laughter, which went on for about five minutes.
0: And you didn't know why he was laughing?
1: I didn't (laughs) know. I had no idea. (laughs) No idea. I just thought he was excitable. And he told me afterwards what had come into his mind.
0: So after the ordinations, do you stay in India? Do you
1: come back? I stayed on for some more time with our Buddhist community, especially in Pune. I went up and down from Pune to Bombay. But then uh, I had arranged in advance that I would take a break and go up to the north of India, They're very far north, up by Darjeeling and Kalimpong, and visit one of Sangha Rikshita's teachers, mm-hmm. the Venerable Dardo Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. And that's the connection I mentioned to the last uh, interview we did, because we spoke about some things Tibetan there. That's right, yeah. Well... When I said to Sangarakshita that I wanted to visit India, that was why I wanted to visit, I wanted to, to go and see the Venerable Dada Rinpoche. And going out to see him, I had the idea that, well, since he's getting quite old, that we really should start finding out about his life and asking, you know, about his life story. And I talked about this with Sangarakshita, and he thought this was very good, and he himself while we were in Tuscany, he came up with a list of 25 questions that he thought I should ask Dardar Rinpoche. So I, I did ask him those questions and, and many more from my side as well.
0: The relationship with Callum Pong and Dardar Rinpoche is one that's probably worth exploring a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Pong has quite a bit of resonance in our history. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dardar Rinpoche is, of course, one of Sangrush's eight mm-hmm. main teachers. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could evoke something of Callum Pong in 1980.
1: Eighty six. I would. Have, I would have been there probably just right about this time, January the tenth, something around about then, mm. in Kalampong, twenty nine years ago, and I, I don't think it had changed very much apart from expanding. The central area of Kalampong, looking at the photographs, seems to be just exactly the same. The same it, as. The same as you know when Sangharakshita had been there, from nineteen fifties through to the mid mid sixties, the mid sixties, yeah. Mm. Uh, Not much had changed.
0: So that was really like the seat of Sangraxpa's teaching life in India was in Kalimpong.
1: Yes, he'd settled there. His his own teacher had taken him up. His own first Buddhist teacher, who was a Theravadan monk, an Indian monk, took him up to visit his own students in Kalimpong. They would have been Nepalese students. And said to Sangraxpa, you stay here and work for the good of Buddhism. And that teacher, the Venerable Kashyapji, he himself left Kalampong, left Sangrakshita there, and went on, and his his own whole life changed as well. He had been a lecturer at Benares Hindu University, and he left that at that point, and his whole history changed. Sangrakshita's history changed, because now instead of being a wanderer, an in Indian, instead of studying with Kashyapji, as he had been doing for the previous nine months, he now was left in a little traditional Buddhist vihara, Buddhist temple, I could say, in Kalimpong, with just the instructions to work for the good Buddhism. And he was a very young new monk at that time. In Kalimpong, there were many uh, Nepalese Buddhists, Nawar Buddhists, there were Tibetan Buddhists, and there were a whole mix of other peoples as well, including quite a number of unusual Western characters like Prince Peter of Greece and. Princess Irene who was the princess who was the daughter of the last king of Burma mm. and uh, her husband Prince Latikin who Banti also became friends with there was Lama Govinda who was there for some other time there were some of Sangrexida's subsequent teachers it was an amazing place mm. an amazing gathering place of right.
0: people from the west that Lama Govinda is the author of Way of the White Cloud, mm. famous book, mm. and the sort of Tibetan diaspora coming out of the Chinese invasion. Yes. yes. Some of them settling there. Yes.
1: Kalimpong would have been the end of the trade route from Lhasa. It was the main trade route out of Tibet to India, and it would have stopped at Kalimpong, and then everything would have been driven down from Kalampong by jeeps into you know, the plains of India. But when the border closed, then Kalimpong stopped being that bustling town. Its markets stopped being the same sort of markets, and it's sort of it sort of stagnated.
0: Mm.
1: It's grown, but just by population growth, not by technological growth or not by mm. uh, trade growth or anything like that.
0: When you landed in Kampong, was it rather straightforward? Did you have an appointment to see Dardor Rinpoche? Were you just going to go and see if you could find him and see if you could meet him?
1: I knew where he was staying, and a friend of mine had gone up in advance by a couple of days, so Dardor Rinpoche would have known I was coming, and I just passed the way to uh, Dada Rinpoche's place, which was called ITBCI School, the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Cultural Institute School, which is where Dada Rinpoche was staying, which he founded. And, of course, everybody knew where it was, and I was directed just down the road. I could see it from the side of the road. Yes, this has got to be it. In I went, and immediately met by the secretary of the school's family, he took me in, sat me down as a Westerner, brought me tea and giggled and laughed at me. And it was great, just being welcomed. And then they took me up to meet Sangharakshita's teacher, Daudar And
0: that's the start of quite a, a remarkable relationship in some ways. That
1: Well, I don't want to build it up too much because I actually only met him on two occasions. And... On that visit, and on a subsequent one in 1977-78, no, sorry, eighty-seven, eighty-eight. on that winter, the rest of the relationship was built up more by letter and by writing. Well, that's and, what I was
0: thinking of, was the yes. set of wider relationship, because a lot of people involved in our community may know you from your book, The Wheel and the Diamond. Which is a product of that sense of real relationship and fidelity to mm-hmm. Dr. And, and you were the person who in some ways documented his life in a way that hadn't mm-hmm. been done before, probably hasn't been done since.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's been a well, certainly for me when I first came across it, but I know I know many people who found it an inspiration to read about somebody whose practice was so I mean it was situated in another culture, mm-hmm. located mm-hmm. in a different time and space, mm-hmm. but so immediately recognisable mm-hmm. as something to aim at.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to amplify something you said, you know, about me developing the material about his life story. I want to take this chance in a way to acknowledge and to thank the work that had been done by Sachapala. Sachapala's mm. from Birmingham. And he also independently had the same idea and had already started the project. And I didn't know that at the time, and I started off as well. And when I came back Satchapala passed across the material that he'd already gathered and he, you know, got quite a number of things you can see them all here. You've got
0: a great I folder, you can't see I've this got... on the radio, but you've no,
1: got... He... I've got a big folder here and it's got, you know, stuff from questions that Pala had formulated, sent out and got replies back to. So when I came back, I found that some of the things were duplicated. Some things, uh, Satyapala had managed to take much further than I could. Even writing to some of Dada Ramprasad's previous pupils, and the combination of the materials, and especially what Dada Ramprasad wrote afterwards, really sort of just fleshed out the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, sometimes I'd write to Dada Ramprasad, and you know, I'll give you this, you know, show you this letter here. I don't know what's on that one there, but there's a letter back from Rinpoche. so you can see it's typed out by his secretary in English, and Darder signs it at the end, Darder Tulcoon, usually with the date. Sometimes they're handwritten letters, sometimes they're typed letters. So uh,
0: it'd be very good to get a digital archive of this. Well, a beautiful stuff.
1: Yes, there is, and then also. The uh, Dada Rinpoche's secretary, Jampal Carlton, who later became the principal of the school, that Dada Rinpoche had founded, he would send me out photographs, keeping me up to date what Dardan Rinpoche was doing. So, you know, I've also got a whole... I mean, this is just one folder. I've got half a filing cabinet sitting there. But yes, he sent me other, you know, stuff. Oh, of course, you can never find things you, when you want them. Yeah, they've got... Uh, well, me they will, all we, the different photographs with...
0: We'll include some photographs mm-hmm. of this podcast so people can get a little, a little sight of it. So I'm just looking at some very beautiful old
1: These are old photographs. Black and white
0: small pictures. Yes. Dardar and Pichet at work.
1: And also you'd send, you know, like more up-to-date photographs. See there's some there of Dardar and Pichet at Apuja in Kanampong leading the ceremony, sitting up on his traditional throne as it were. But mm. mm. well, these of course I couldn't include in the book. Mm.
0: So with Satyapala's input, you begin to document his life. Mm. But before you get to that, you've got these visits that you do with with Dara So, mm. what was your initial impression of him?
1: It's hard to describe, but what, what it's like meeting somebody that you've heard about so much, and he doesn't know you, and you know he's very, you know, famous as it as it were. He's quite a big figure, and then you go up and you meet him, and he's just sitting in his room on his own reading a book. And reading a you know a Tibetan text of some sort, a religious text of some sort, so just sitting there reading a book, and you know he just obviously welcomes you immediately. Come in, come in. You go to take your shoes off, and he says no, 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 no. You know because that's not the tradition from the Tibetans. You know in such a cold climate, to take your shoes off to walk into a stone floored room. Actually, no wooden floored room. I, I regretted it, not keeping my shoes okay. on.
0: So Kalimpong <laughs> in winter is cold.
1: Very cold very cold yes bitterly cold especially in the shadow but just such a, a warm affable humble man not at all you know the great tibetan lama who would be sitting on a high throne and and uh, you know you would never sort of meet him face to face and just talk with him on a human level that was unusual at that time and Dada Rinpoché was unusual in, in doing that. Other Rinpochés which I, I found out later were much more difficult to meet them on that sort of level. So he just you know gestured me to you know to to sit down, and he you know he gestured with his hand, holding his hand out with the full palm, and I thought he was holding his hand out to shake mine. So of course I I shook his hand, and I could hear the slight gasps of you know protocol being. Uh, so that other people great. were like, oh, oh my god, what a faux pas. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't
0: mind at
1: all? Of course not, of course not at all. He shook my hand quite heartily. And uh, I sat down and there was you know quite a bit of laughter on both her sides. I think partly because you know, I I'd realised I'd made a, a faux pas at the beginning. But then you know he, he quickly asked. He'd heard my health was bad from my friend who'd come up a couple of days earlier and he was asking, how is your health, and are you all right, do you need any medicine, have you got medicine, and so on. And so, uh, you know, I was able to just be put at my ease and very quickly enter into some sort of relationship with him.
0: How long did you stay with him?
1: In those days, you only got two day pass to visit Kanampong because it was still regarded as a, a sensitive area, being right, you know, so close to the border of, of Tibet. You arrived on the first day. You had a second day, and then you left on the uh, the third day, usually in the morning. Later in the morning, so you squeezed as much as you could out of your visit. So yeah, I made sure I got up there very early in the morning, and I had the whole day. She gave me the whole day, and he gave me the whole of the next day, and then uh, what a little bit on the third morning. And off I went. That was the same on both the visits.
0: That was the 25 questions. You got your 25
1: questions in? I got more than that. I got the 25 questions, and he said, Well, we should do the 25 questions first because these are Sangharachita's questions. And So we did that, and we followed on with my questions.
0: Can you remember an example of Sangharachita's questions?
1: Yes, I remember one of the questions that Svante asked to Dardar Rinpoche. He'd said that he'd heard that Hard Dardar Rinpoche stayed in Tibet and completed his studies that he would have been eventually the head of the Galukpa order, the Gandantripa. And Dada Pesha replied, yes, he heard correctly, and that had Dada Pesha stayed in and had he completed those studies and everything else in between that would have been required, yes, he would have been in line for that position. And that some of his juniors had already become... Gandan Tripas, a post that you hold for, uh, I think, seven years. And some of his juniors had already become and retired, so he probably would have been. He was an exceptional character and an ex- exceptional position when he was in Tibet to have become a very influential Rinpoche. But he didn't stay in Tibet, of course. Mm. And that's a whole other story, isn't it? thats that, is. that he left.
0: No, this is an interview. There's so much one could say about Dharja yes. remarkable life. Mm-hmm. I think all we can do is recommend that people get a hold of The Wheel and the Diamond by mm-hmm. if they can. Now, the book is out of print. And you, I understand, are going to publish an updated version of it. Mm-hmm. And we, on the Buddhist Centre Online, are going to try and work with you to make that as widely available as possible mm-hmm. to people. So watch the space. Mm-hmm. But this is your first visit and you've had your two days with them. You've got to leave. Are they going to chase you out of Callum does, does somebody keep tabs on you while you're there? Oh, somebody
1: keeps tabs. The police keep tabs on you. They know which foreigners are in the place and how long you've been there. It's much more loose now, much more loose. But then you had to register with the police that you'd arrived and I can't remember if you signed out on the way out but you certainly had to sign the book when you left the Pong area, going over the Teesta Bridge,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And is this towards the end of your trip now? You you heading home?
1: More or less, I went back down to uh, to Bombay, Pune and Bombay. I had a couple of weeks there. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a mix up. I got ill. It was probably just the same illness recurring again, down in Bombay, and I got my passport and ticket and money robbed on the train, Bombay train. And so I couldn't get my flight back. I had to wait for another passport to arrive. And then I did get it and I was going back via Rome. And when I arrived in Rome, I got drugged in Rome and ended up sitting outside Rome Central Station, unconscious from 1 o'clock in the morning to 8.15 in the morning. Somebody gave you a sweetie? They gave me a sweetie, yes. In sleet and snow.
0: My goodness, this is a memorable winter for all the wrong reasons.
1: Yes, yes, it was back to real winter, and a shocking experience where I I nearly lost my life. Hmm. Yes, it was just amazing. Just through a little sort of slip in ordinary carefulness. Never accept sweeties from strangers. Your mothers would tell you. That's
0: right. Certainly not in the
1: railway station at
0: one
1: in the morning. And I accepted a sweet. That's another story. That's another story for another occasion. For another
0: occasion. When you leave, is it your intention at that point to come back as soon as you can and continue working on his life story? Was it something that was a bit more fortuitous than that, like you happened to be there? and?
1: It was my intention to come back, and between the first and the second visit, I already sent Dardor and Bishop various questions for him to answer, and my sort of first draft, I wrote him... You know, different parts. I sent him different parts of that, and he sent back comments saying, "Well, that's not quite correct. This part," and he would underline a certain few words and say, "If you write it in such and such a way, it'd be more correct." So he had an active part in playing with editing some of the material.
0: Yeah, he's doing all this via translation, presumably.
1: Yes, yes.
0: He will come back in the spring, and, and we'll talk more about Dardar and Pushy I think. Just wanted to bring in something, another connection here, which is. In New Hampshire, mm-hmm. we've recently had a, a new stupa. We started this with an evocation of the stupa to Dr. Baloseb Bedkar. Mm-hmm. Nice to finish it with this mm-hmm. this stupa to Dardo Rinpoche, which was many years in the making, and a few years ago you were kind enough to send some of Dardo's ashes to be included in the stupa. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to see that stupa is mm-hmm. now up, mm-hmm. and the present Dardo Rinpoche, Toku, is going to come and dedicate the stupa
1: very nice in the next couple of months mm. in America it's so a very
0: nice little kind of
1: yes and it's a very beautiful stupa that you've done mm. it is a very
0: beautiful yes. stupa yes. all the work of some traditional Tibetan Buddhist builders who were commissioned by Vri Gita, very loyal to Dardar Rinpoche great deal of love for his teaching his mm. example mm. and inspired by Bodhi Lohana, who sadly died but mm. it was her dying wish that mm. a stupa be erected and she set it in motion with some money for it etc Thanks for sharing your memorable
1: winter. Well, thank you for coming back and doing another interview, as you said you would.
0: Another seasonal.
1: Another seasonal, and hopefully we'll have many more flowers in the spring.
0: We will. We'll have blossoms aplenty in the spring, and we'll hear more about your next visits to Dardo. Great. And how that book emerges. Yes. For now, folks, that's all from Sabadra's Seasonal. You can listen to many more podcasts like this at SoundCloud. Just search for The Buddhist Centre. You can get the link from the homepage of The Buddhist Centre online. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. We'll be back with more Buddhist voices before Suvadra's next seasonal. In the meantime, go well.